So we are looking at the seventh commandment this morning. Uh, Do not commit adultery. Uh, I want to just give a disclaimer. I gave a disclaimer in the pastoral email this week. If if there's a rating scale for sermons, this is like a PG-13 kind of sermon. Uh, We're going to be talking about um, sexual sin. We're going to be talking about that whole bunch of stuff that falls under that umbrella. So I just want to put that out there and allow you to be aware. I also want to, I'm very aware of the sensitivity of a subject like this and and how many of us have been touched by this sort of sin. And my hope this morning is that you would be so encouraged by God's grace and his mercy and his love for you that you would cast yourself onto him. That's my hope for this morning. And so with that, Author and scholar Peter Lightheart, he wrote this little book on the Ten Commandments that I would highly recommend. It's really good. It's like really short, and it almost looks like a children's book, but it's not. Um, I would highly recommend it. And at the beginning of his chapter on the Seventh Commandment, he makes a statement about how the God of Sinai is an intrusive God who won't leave us alone. He's an intrusive God who won't leave us alone. I think the reality is, is we don't like people in our business. We don't like being told what to do. In fact, as a culture, we have adopted what church historian Carl Truman has been writing about for the last few years, an expressive individualism. In layman's terms, you do you, be true to yourself, and the classic follow your heart. This isn't a new concept. In fact, it's something that has been flowing through the veins of humanity since the moment Eve said yes to the serpent. It's taken many forms, some that have actually been helpful for society and culture and others that have wreaked havoc on humanity. But I don't want to get too far off course here. What I want to look at this morning is the intrusive nature of God and how how his intrusion is a grace in our lives that comes head to head with our desire for autonomy, with our desire to follow our heart and simply to be true to ourselves. God's intrusion is a grace that comes head to head with that sort of understanding of the world. That is something we need to wrap our minds around. God's intrusion is grace. It's because he loves us that he gives his law. It's because he loves us that he sets parameters around us. So I need for us to keep that in our minds as we're working through our passages this morning. The seventh word of the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments, teaches us that our bodies are not our own, that they have been bought with a price, and there is a very specific way we are to use them. And while that might feel restrictive and, and as I've said, intrusive, what we know, what we know, and we know this from Scripture, from our own consciences, and from experience, is that submitting our sexuality to God in Christ is a path which leads to freedom and flourishing. We know this. This is not news. And so... Our first point, Old Testament sexual ethics. The commandment itself is pretty straightforward. You shall not commit adultery. And so, quick question, right? What is adultery? 
Webster defines it as voluntary sexual intercourse between a married person and someone other than that person's current spouse or partner. I have a little cold, so I apologize. The term itself shows up around 30 times in the Hebrew Bible, and it is used to describe exactly what Webster defines it as, but it is also used to describe Israel's unfaithfulness to God. Now, as I was studying, I found this was really interesting, is that in the culture surrounding Israel, in the ancient Near Eastern context, adultery as a crime was specifically directed toward married women, meaning that married men would not have been formally charged. It wasn't smiled upon, but it also wasn't a crime. Whereas in the Old Testament, we see the term being applied to both men and women. I just think that's interesting. It's something that you can chew on for a little bit. We're not going to dig too deep into that. It does reveal something about our God, and it reveals something about the law of God. But that's something for you guys to wrestle with, and maybe we can talk about it later on. But one thing is certain. The fact is that it shows up in these 10 words. And that reveals something about how God views the institution of marriage and how he views human sexuality. So I want to dig into that a little bit further. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 20. Leviticus chapter 20. I don't know if I have a slide for this. I might have not put one up. So we're just going to have to go the old-fashioned way and open up our Bibles. Or if you have a phone, by all means, you can scroll through your Bibles as well. Leviticus chapter 20. And I'm going to read to you verses 10 through 21. And it says this. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor... Both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes a woman and her mother also, it is depravity, and he and they shall be burned with fire, that there may be no depravity among you. If a man lies with an animal, you shall kill the animal, and he shall surely be put to death as well. If a woman approaches any animal and lies with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father or a daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness and she sees his, it is a disgrace and they shall be cut off in the sight of the children of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness and he shall bear his iniquity. If a man lies with a woman during her menstrual period and uncovers her nakedness, he has made naked her fountain and she has uncovered the fountain of her blood. Both of them shall be cut off from among their people. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister or of your father's sister, for that is that is to make naked one's relative. They shall bear their iniquity. If a man lies with his uncle's wife, he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. They shall bear the sin. They shall die childless. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. Now, why did I read all of that and all of that detail? I want us to understand something. I want us to wrap our minds around something really quickly, right? If we just blow through that entire thing, the penalty for adultery is death. The penalty for incest is death. The penalty for homosexuality is death. The penalty for sex with a mother and her daughter is death. Sex with an animal equals death to both the individual and the animal. 
In Exodus 22, 16 through 17, it says that if a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. And Job speaks about making a covenant with his eyes to not gaze upon a virgin. What is the point I'm trying to make? First, I'm not saying we should be putting adulterers to death. That's not what I'm saying. So we can all breathe easy. In fact, what we learn from Paul is that these executable offenses of the old covenant are the church disciplinary offenses of the new covenant, meaning that those who commit these sorts of sins are to be dealt with by the elders of the church with the goal of repentance, restoration, and reconciliation. What I am trying to say in citing just a few of the law codes in ancient Israel is that we, what we learn about God is that he cares deeply about human sexuality. And the reason he cares so much about it is because he cares deeply about the holiness of his people. He cares deeply about the holiness of his people. If you still have your finger in Leviticus chapter 20, I want to look at the verses that are following that entire section we just read. It says this. It says, You shall therefore keep all of my statutes and all of my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, You shall inherit the land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. God is like, I want to bless you. I want to give you everything. But you need to keep my covenant. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples, made you holy. Another way of saying that. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything which the ground, on which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord your God, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. The ultimate goal is that Israel, God's people, would be a holy people distinct from the surrounding nations. Why? Why? Because they bore the name of God. Because they bore the name of God, meaning they represented God to the nations. And the God of creation is a God of covenantal love, a love with boundaries and parameters, which is a love that flourishes, and that's what he wants the world to understand about him. That's what he wants the world to understand about him. Why else does he care? Because human sexuality was a gift given for the purposes of bringing together a man and a woman in holy matrimony, to cultivate intimacy, and to produce children. And furthermore, the covenantal union between a man and a woman is reflective of the covenantal union between humanity and God. So when this gift 
of sexuality is abused or carelessly entered into, whether through adultery, casual sex, sexual immorality, homosexual practice, the selfish and destructive use of pornography, sexual abuse, and rape. It is a direct affront to the image of God and to God himself. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. It's why the consequences of David's sin against Bathsheba, her husband Uriah, and ultimately God are so severe, but there is beauty amid the ashes, and we're going to look at that in just a few minutes. Now, when we get to the New Testament, this conversation of adultery is deepened and expanded. In the same way murder begins in the heart, so too does the act of adultery and sexual immorality. If you have your Bibles, again, flip with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is, is the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' teachings of the kingdom. It's his way of taking the, the Old Testament law and demonstrating how he is the fulfillment of it and how we should live in light of his coming how he is the fulfillment of it, and how we should live in light of his coming. And he says this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. He says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Now there's this pattern in the Sermon on the Mount that you have heard it said, but I say to you. It, it flows throughout this teaching section. And, and it's important because he's, he's articulating the customs of the day or the Mosaic law. There's like both and going on there. And then he's showing you the deeper meaning and interpretation of what the purpose of that law actually was. So he says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, the first thing I want to get out on the table, what Jesus is not saying, he is not saying that lust with the eyes is identical to the physical act of adultery. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that both of those things are sin before God and, and drives a wedge between us and God and between the person with whom we are committing adultery against. But, but I think we would all agree that the consequences of physical adultery are a lot different than the consequences of lusting in our heart or in our mind. And so he's not trying to say that all sin has the same consequences, and if you committed one, you might as well do the whole thing. Like, that's not what he's getting at. It's not what he's getting at. It's really important that we understand that. He then says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. And so the first thing Jesus does is he quotes the law. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But then he deepens and he expands it. He says, but I say to you that everyone, and that, that word everyone means everyone. So, so part of me is wrestling, like, is he just talking to, to spouses or is he talking to everybody? Maybe he's talking to I don't know. I mean, it's, it's true, only a spouse, spouse can commit adultery, but everyone can commit the sin of sexual immorality. So maybe it's both and. I don't know. You'll have to figure that out on your own. But everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then Jesus goes into how we should approach this sort of sin. 
And it's a whatever-it-takes method that he adopts. He doesn't literally mean you should gouge out your eyes and chop off your hand, because in all reality, that's not the problem. The problem's in our heart. It's not an issue of our eyes or our hands, but it's what our heart and minds tell our eyes and hands to do. And so the problem is much deeper than, than surface level. But the point is, is that unfaithfulness doesn't just come out of nowhere. It begins by what we allow ourselves to take in, and it burrows itself into our hearts, and we can either cut it off or we can nurture it. The Apostle Paul digs into this a little bit as well. If you, have, if you want to go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I want to read to you verses 1 through 13. A lot of Bible today. He says this, it is actually reported, and he's writing to this church in Corinth, and Corinth was a little bit of a mess, and, and you'll realize how much of a mess just from this brief passage. He said, is it actually reported to you that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans? Basically, what Paul's saying is like, it's like, you guys have even broken barriers that, that your pagan neighbors wouldn't even approach. Like, something's really wrong with you. He says, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not to rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to, to deliver this man to Satan for destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the leavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy, the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with them. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Paul is basically saying this sin is so grievous that he needs to be put out of the congregation because it's infecting the rest of the body. And, and what Paul's not saying, Paul's not saying you shouldn't be around anyone who who, who lives in such a way, because if you were to do that, you would never see anybody. You would lock yourself in your home. But those people are not to be in, in, in communion in the church. Immorality and sin, and in particular, sexual immorality, is something that has a ripple effect that impacts more than just those who are involved because it is so deeply covenantal. And because it is such a big deal, those who persist in this sort of behavior have no part in the body of Christ. Those who persist in this behavior. If, if we look a little bit further on in chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, 
next chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, and I know this is heavy, so, so I apologize for a heavy morning, like, but this is important because it shows up in the text. It's part of what it means for us to walk in faithfulness, so we need to wrestle with this stuff as followers of Jesus. He says this, verse 12, chapter 6, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved to anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And here's, here's the point he's driving at. You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And so we go back to the beginning of the sermon where we read that quote by Peter Lightheart where he talks about how God is an intrusive God. And, and an intrusive God in a culture where we care so much about what we want and what we desire and what we think we should be, that butts heads with it. But Paul is saying, no, 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 you don't get it. You actually don't own your body if you've submitted yourself to Christ, if you've entrusted yourself to him for your salvation, because he purchased that body with his blood. And so when we talk about being members of the body of Christ, that's actually what we are. We're members of the body of Christ. And when we use our bodies to satisfy our own fleshly desires, we're making a mockery of the body of Christ. That's what we're doing. That's heavy, right? That's heavy, but that's real. That's what's actually happening. That's what's actually happening. See, 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 we're not Gnostics in the sense like we don't think there's this division between body and spirit. See, we believe the body matters as Christians. In fact, what we believe is that one day these bodies like this flesh will be renewed and restored and glorified. We don't float around for all eternity as spirit. That's not how it happens. Heaven comes down and a new creation unfolds and it's a physical creation that we can touch and that we will walk around in. And so our bodies matter immensely. And what we do with our bodies matters immensely because we have been purchased by the blood of Christ and we belong to him. This matters this is a big deal. Paul explains that the body is not for sexual, sexual immorality because it is meant for God. And that when we engage in sexual immorality, we are brought into union or made one flesh with that 
person. In other words, to perform covenantal acts without a covenant and without covenantal faithfulness is an affront to God. It's an affront to God to perform covenantal acts outside of covenant and without covenantal faithfulness is an affront to God. Now, why do I say that? Well, if you go down just a little bit further in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, and if everyone has their Bibles on their laps, this is, this is a good day for it. He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, verse 1, it is good for a man to not have sexual relationships with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And this is where it gets important. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another. Now, now there's, there's practical stuff here, but like I think what we need to be careful of, because I do think that some Christian cultures have abused texts like this and, and said, like, well, I can do whatever I want in the context of my marriage. And, and no, no, that's, that's not what this means. That's not what this means. But there's a theological point that Paul's making. Because notice what he said in chapter 6, verse 20. For you were bought with a price. You are not your own. And then he goes right into the marriage relationship. And he reiterates that point. You are not your own. You belong to your spouse. And so what is the point that Paul is making other than, none other than that, that the relationship in, in, a, in, a, in a marriage between a man and a woman in holy matrimony is a picture of God's love for his people. Sex in the context of marriage between a man and a woman are covenantal signposts directing our gaze to the covenantal relationship God has established with his people and secured with the blood of his son. And that's why it's such a big deal when we treat it as anything other than that. It's a big deal. Now, why am I going so deeply into like the theology and exegesis of this? Because, because what I think, what I believe is that simply telling you don't commit adultery, don't lust, or, or even when I was a kid and, 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 and when I first became a Christian and I was told, like, you can't lust, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, I was like, okay, I, but why? But why? No one ever really actually walked me through the why. It was just don't, 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 don't. But there is an enormous why. Because... The sexual union of a man and a woman in the context of holy matrimony is meant to display to the world the goodness of God and his relationship with his people. And to, 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 to carelessly engage that is to mock God. See, I, I didn't understand that when I was 16, 17 years old. No one taught me that. And in fact... 
no one taught me that in, in my 20s. Like, it took me, like, studying the scriptures to understand the, how big of a deal. Like, yeah, I know, like, you know, one flesh is, we all know that stuff. But it's not until we actually dig in and understand what is happening in the context of a marriage do we get why this is such a big deal. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. And I'm going to start in verse 21 because I believe that verse 21 is the heading of, of what's called the household codes. It says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and as himself his Savior, its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to, in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. See, Paul's like going in and out of language here. He's like, he's talking about the husband. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the husband. And, and that's intentional. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. Either way, though, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband, lest you think this is just a theological exercise. It's also massively practical. But the point that Paul is making is that this beautiful relationship of husband and wife, which was instituted at creation, was always meant to reveal something about God. It was meant to show the world the covenantal faithfulness and love that God has for his people. And notice how it says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, and then it goes into this conversation. What we're learning about marriage is that it's a mutually submissive relationship, meaning that we do whatever we can to love and serve our spouse, to care for them, to protect them, to, to guard them, to uphold them. And, and, and in so doing, we're revealing the love of Christ to the world because they're looking at our marriage and they're saying, there's something different about those two. There's something different about those two. This doesn't mean we don't fight. This doesn't mean we don't bicker. It doesn't mean we're perfect, but it means we're faithful. It means that our marriages look like something otherworldly. That's what it means. And, and this mutual submission, it does in fact reflect something about even who Christ is because in a sense, Christ submitted himself to us by dying for us. And so this is, this is why God cares so deeply about human sexuality because of what message it is bringing to the world what it is conveying about who he is. It's why marriage is so vitally important to God. 
It's why the sexual union between a man and a woman in holy matrimony is so important to God. Paul paints this covenantal picture so beautifully as he demonstrates that a faithful, mutually submissive, and loving union of a man and a woman in holy matrimony is one of the primary ways the world catches a glimpse of what God is like. And you know what? We know it's true. Not just because we read it in Scripture. We know it's true because every single one of us, even the toughest guy out there, cries at a wedding. A little bit. Just a little bit. It's why we rejoice at the birth of a child and we smile when we see a couple in their 90s walking hand in hand through the park. But it's also why we're devastated when families are broken, when children are abandoned by one of their parents, and when we learn of our children treating sex as something to be toyed around with. We know the consequences, whether it's because we've experienced them or have been close to someone who has experienced them. It's why sexual crimes feel even worse than murder. Because there is only one context where one should feel naked and unashamed. So we've talked about a lot of really difficult things some really dark things. And I know the reality that many of us in this room have been touched by the pain of sexual sin, adultery, and even abuse. What I'm here to tell you this morning is that no matter where you might be, no matter what pain you might be experiencing, and no matter what baggage you might be carrying, I believe there's a word here for all of us. In the Old Testament, there was a man named David. His story began unexpectedly. A shepherd from a small town in Judah, he was unassuming at best. Yet God had his hand upon him. He was used to crush the head of Goliath. There's a whole theological, biblical theological thing there that you can dig into. He became king of Israel, and he is described as a man after God's own heart. But as most of us know, there's more to David's story. If you turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11, I told you a lot of Bible this morning. It's like a sword drill in here, right? I'm just going to start reading. It says in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, verse 1, in the spring of that year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. That word can be translated beautiful or it can be translated as good. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he laid with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. In other words, she was ovulating. 
Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now I want you to notice the language here. What did David do? David saw that Bathsheba was beautiful or good. And I talked about this um, during discipleship courses past week. And then he sent his messengers to take her. Now, this is the exact same language used to describe Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden. Saw, good, took. Saw, beautiful, took. David was informed of who she was, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, but he decided to lay with her anyway, and she ends up getting pregnant. Text continues, verses 6 and following. So David went, sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was and and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet, and go relax. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go to his own house. When they told David Uriah did not go to his own house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping out in the field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? In other words, Uriah is a guy of integrity, right? He's a good dude. I lost my spot because I got excited. As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow. I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. So what is going on here? David tries to cover up his sexual sin, this adultery, um, possibly even sexual abuse. It's important to remember that David was king. Saying no to the king isn't really an option. There's, there's debates on this. You know, we can't land on one area, but there's, there's debates there. And then he calls her husband home with the hope that he would go and spend the night with his wife, but he doesn't because he's a good guy. And the outcome is that David ends up killing Uriah by ordering him to the front lines of battle. The adulterous look turned into an act of sexual sin and adultery, which ended up with David murdering a woman's husband point. And I want us to fully wrap our minds around the gravity of David's sin. I also want us to wrap our minds around the depth of this man's depravity and wickedness. It's important that we understand this. David is not really demonstrating anything that would remotely resemble what's been described of him as a man after God's own heart. This is a confusing passage because David's a big deal in the Bible. He's the one who, who, who the, he's the promised king. He's the promised king whose throne Jesus is seated upon as we speak. It's like, whoa, what is this guy? 2 Samuel 12, something happens. I'm not going to read through it. But the following chapter shows us the courage of this prophet named Nathan 
who was called by God to confront David and his sin. And when David was confronted, something clicked in him. I have sinned against the Lord, he said. And from what we understand, there was genuine repentance. Now, this doesn't mean David didn't suffer horrific consequences. The child he had with Bathsheba got sick and died. His household fell apart. Rape, murder, womanizing, and the blatant disregard for the law of Moses wreaked havoc on his family. Israel was divided and eventually ends up in exile say all that because there are simply natural consequences for our sin. There are natural consequences for our sin. Sexual sin, which leads to sexual brokenness and trauma, has devastating effects on families for generations. But this doesn't mean that God is absent and unwilling to breathe life into the brokenness of this world. See, God is still on the move here. Turn with me to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a psalm attributed to David that he penned after being confronted by Nathan the prophet. And he says this, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know, because I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. See, David's request for mercy is grounded in his knowledge of God's covenantal faithfulness, his hesed love. It says, according to your steadfast love. That's that covenantal love, that that covenantal loyalty that that David knows God has for him. And he he says, because of that, God, please have mercy on me. I beg you. I have sinned grievously. I am a broken man. I need your grace. And and he recognizes his need for cleansing because he knows the holiness of his God. And then he says that his transgressions and his sins are ever before him. In other words, grace and forgiveness doesn't mean we don't remember. It doesn't mean that we don't live with the consequences of our actions, physical consequences, consequences, emotional consequences, relational consequences especially in the realm of sexual sin. It has a way of infecting us. And while we might be, be, be lavished with the grace of God, we still remember and the hurt still remains. And it takes time. It takes time for healing. He recognizes that his sin, right here it says, it says against you, verse 4, if you look down at your Bibles, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in the truth and the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. He recognizes that his sin was a direct affront to God. This doesn't mean that he doesn't care about Uriah or Bathsheba. But right now he's doing business with God. He's like, I messed up, God. I need you. 
I need your grace. Verses 7 through 12 says, Purge me with hyssop. I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold with me and me a willing spirit. He wants to find his way back to the joy he once experienced, the joy of God's salvation. He's longing for God to restore him, to reconcile him. His sin has built a wall between him and God, and he wants to break through. The point is that David is a man after God's own heart because God said he was a man after God's own heart. Not because there was anything inherently special about David. God says, he's a man after my own heart. God breathes life into us through the power of the Holy Spirit and the person and work of Jesus. We need to understand us. Those of us who are in sin right now as I'm speaking these words, those of us who are struggling, those of us who are on the receiving end of this, we need to know that it's God who is walking with us and he's calling us out of it. He's saying flee and run to Jesus. And for those who have been on the receiving end of this sort of sin, it's not your fault. And the Lord sees you. He walks with you and he loves you and he pleads with you. In the words from the writer of Hebrews, to draw near to him with a true heart in full assurance of faith with your hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and your bodies washed pure with water. See, that's the thing about evil consciences. They have a way of allowing the accusing words of, of the devil to, to, speak, to speak untruth over us. If you are on the receiving end of anything we've been talking about this morning and you feel shame for that and you feel as though you're responsible for that, that is the evil conscience speaking to you. That is not the grace of God. And you need to hear the good news of your Savior that your bodies have been washed clean with pure water. That's the truth of the gospel. That if you've been sinned against in this regard, you are seen, you are cared for, and you are loved by God, and you are clean because you are in Christ. You need to hear that. You need to hear that. And so as we come to a close this morning, my hope is that those of you who are struggling with this sort of sin or who are thinking of participating in this sort of sin, that you would stop and that you would turn your eyes toward Christ. Remember that our bodies were purchased with the precious blood of Christ and that he has good works prepared for us to walk in. If you're struggling, speak with a pastor. Let the church help you. 
that the wall between you and God might be broken down so that you can have the joy of your salvation restored. And for those of you who have been on the receiving end of sexual sin, come to Jesus. Let him show you your worth and your beauty as a child of God who bears his name. And if you need to talk to a pastor, please come see us. If you need to sit with a counselor, there is zero shame in that. If you're unable to afford a counselor, please come talk to us. The good news that we need to walk away with this morning is that there is grace even in the midst of deep shame and deep sorrow. And God is able through the person and work of his son Jesus and by the power of his Holy Spirit to restore us and make us whole. There's hope in Christ. There's hope in the good news of the gospel. There's hope, Redeemer. We don't have to walk in darkness. We don't have to walk in shame. We can come to our Lord. And as we come to the table this morning, make this an opportunity, if you are in the midst of sin, to be the moment that you cast that sin aside, that you repent. And even this day, come talk to one of your pastors that we can help you and we can care for you. We can pray for you. We can guide you and, and get you help if help is needed. Don't let this persist even a day longer. It can't because it wreaks havoc on our souls. It just does, and we know it does. Not just because the Bible says so, but because we've experienced the pain, whether from ourselves or in the, in the lives of those around us. Run to Jesus, I beg you. Let's go to the Lord. Father in heaven, we love you with all of our hearts and we thank you for your grace, your amazing grace, Lord God. Lord, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Oh, Father, and that blood cleanses us and removes our guilt and shame so that we can stand before you in holiness because you said so. Lord, we are men and women after your heart because you have said so. And you have made that true of us by cleansing us through the power of your Holy Spirit and the work of your Son, Jesus. Thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.